The world is ending. Again. Doomsdayers and apocalyptic prophets have warned of coming calamity for millennia. Still, humanity persists. This podcast invites entrepreneurs, scholars, community leaders, artists, and many others to envision the end of the world according to their expertise. I'm Vera Rose Smith, your host, and this is Art at the End of the World. Today we welcome Sarah Ziegenhorn, founder and executive director of Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition. Sarah holds an undergraduate degree in geography and biology from McAllister College and has many years of experience in public policy and community organizing. In addition to her advocacy work and nonprofit leadership, Sarah is currently pursuing a medical degree at the University of Iowa. Our conversation was recorded on Wednesday, April 8th, 2020. So thank you so much for taking time to do this interview. And could you introduce yourself and a little bit about your current role? Sure. So my name is Sarah Ziegenhorn. I'm the founding executive director of the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, um, a short for we go by IHRC commonly, um, and we're a statewide nonprofit that does advocacy, technical assistance, training, education, and direct services for people who use drugs. So all of our work is really focused on uh, protecting and promoting the health rights and dignity of people who use drugs in the state of Iowa. Amazing. And how did you get interested in this work? Sure. So I, uh, about 10 years ago, um, I was living in South Africa and um, I had a, a homestay family that I lived with for about a year. It was during my study abroad as an undergraduate and um, in the, the neighborhood where my homestay family lived was fairly, uh, fairly low income. And there are a number of, of women who worked in the neighborhood as, um, as street-based sex workers. And so I got really interested um, as I built friendships with people in the neighborhood and with the folks that were um, engaged in this kind of survival economy, um, got interested in sex worker health and rights. And so um, when I came back from my study abroad experience, I did a research project on uh, on an urban transportation project in the Twin Cities. At the time, they're starting to build a light rail and in this area um, that had been a notorious stroll for people doing outdoor and street-based sex work for many, many decades. And so I was really curious how uh, this project, which many people saw as gentrification, was going to impact the health and well-being of people who were working outside on that, the, the street where this light rail was meant to be built. And so kind of from there, everything else has, has sort of flowed and developed really easily. Um, I moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, after I finished my undergraduate degree. Um, and because I had had these, these research experiences and done this work in South Africa and in the Twin Cities, um, on the first day that I started a, a new job at a DC think tank doing health policy work, I had a friend uh, or a colleague come up to me and say, uh, what are you doing tonight? Can you commit to do a 40-hour training to be a volunteer at the needle exchange program here in DC? And I, just having moved to DC, was like, sure, why not? Um, I don't have anything else going on. And the rest is sort of history from there. So I started um, working with the Needle Exchange Program in DC, um, providing overnight outreach on a weekly basis. So 
driving around the city of DC between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. providing syringe exchange services to folks um, who inject drugs and then working directly with people who do street-based sex work in the city of DC. That's an incredible story and such amazing, inspiring work. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your training influenced where you are today? So you mentioned your first experiences in this world of advocating for people who use drugs and people who engage in sex work as part of your undergraduate studies. Could you tell us a little bit more about your course of study and then your professional training before you founded this organization? Sure. Um, so I completed my undergraduate degree at a private liberal arts college in St. Paul, Minnesota called McAllister. And so McAllister is a, a small school um, with a number of unique opportunities for individualized study. And so um, I majored in geography, which was a really good grounding in uh, social science research methods, especially uh, research methods used in geography. Um, and taking a place-based approach to thinking about social problems in the world. And because people in public health um, recognize how important place is to shaping people's health and well-being, um, there's sort of a nice synergy with uh, community health and global health work. And so I had an interdisciplinary concentration in community and global health that I completed, as well as um, a second major in biology. So it got sort of a well-rounded training in hard sciences and social sciences, um, and then went to work in DC at a think tank applying um, some of the conceptual and more theoretical training that I'd received. Um, and had worked, done a lot of a lot of social science research in geography as an undergrad. Um, so moving to DC, the think tank that I was working at was a research one, it's called the, the Institute of Medicine and now known as the National Academies or the National Academy of Medicine. Um, and so in that role, the work that we did was really focused on uh, synthesizing research so that it could be presented to policymakers um, and then delivering uh, evidence-based strategies for public policy change to folks working on the Hill in DC, so people shaping federal policy. Um, and so that has been really, really helpful training for the work that I do now with HRC um, because it gave me a, a very practical lens on how to communicate about science and how to um, engage policymakers and build relationships with individuals who shape policy at many, many levels. And, um, the work that I had done in, in my undergrad, but then also in the five years that I spent at the think tank, um, made it very clear to me that a lot of times when we think about advocacy work, we focus so intensely on the individual people who are making policies uh, through a legislative decision-making process. But um, in public health and um, in federal policy work, we we understand and we recognize that everybody has a role to play in making communities healthy places to live. Um, and so that has been really foundational for me in thinking about how do we achieve better health for people who use drugs in Iowa. A lot of that is done not just by focusing on advocating to politicians or policymakers, but um, connecting with and building relationships with broad stakeholder groups in a community. 
And what brought you back to Iowa specifically? And was there more of a need here than other places? That's a great question. Um, so I came back to Iowa in 2015 uh, to pursue a medical degree at the University of Iowa. And so um, I've diverged a lot from that path and I hoped I plan to finish my medical degree within the next couple of years. Um, but I've spent a lot of time working um, for IHRC as something I didn't foresee I would do and sort of taking a break in medical school to work um, and is not very common. But uh, when I came, Iowa is my home state and I grew up, I was raised in Iowa City and on a farm outside of Muscatine. And so when I came back to Iowa, I had been living outside of the state for almost a decade um, that I was really alarmed after about a year of being back um, in recognizing what had happened during the time that I had lived elsewhere. And so uh, sort of as a teenager, I grew up in a, a part of history in Iowa where it was very, very common for people, especially uh, youth and adolescents, to be using prescription opioids and be using pills um, as something that they did recreationally or at a party with their friends. Um, but by the time I had come back, a lot of the people that I knew who had been um, sort of casually using pills, uh, many of them were dead um, and had passed away of overdoses, and then many had been incarcerated or many were actively using heroin. And so um, when I thought about everything that I had learned in DC, both working in the needle exchange there and in the federal health policy role that I worked in, um, I knew there was so much great work going on to build community support for people that use drugs. Um, and I saw none of it happening in Iowa. And so I was alarmed at how far, and I hate to use the, this idea that Iowa is behind because um, it creates an idea that we're all heading in the same direction and that communities don't have their own um, unique destiny, but that everywhere is sort of a homogenous place and some places are better in a hierarchy than others. But um, when it comes to public health solutions for overdose prevention, infectious disease prevention, uh, substance use treatment, Iowa really was uh, behind and there really are a number of uh, sort of gold standard approaches to these problems that can be implemented to solve them and that other communities had been uh, engaging for many, many years previously. Thank you so much for that explanation. Does the ruralism or the geography of the state of Iowa affect availability of the types of resources that IHRC now provides? Definitely. Um, we, we're the only organization in the state that provides the types of services that we do. Um, and we are very, very, very poorly uh, funded. While we are well resourced in terms of um, the number of individuals and volunteers that we have collaborating with the work that we do, um, Iowa uh, has not made it a priority to use any of the federal funds that they have received to address the opioid crisis to fund the types of initiatives that our organization works on. And so, 
because public health is funded primarily with public dollars, be they state, local, or federal dollars, um, we're really at a disadvantage as being the only service provider of our kind in the state um, without very much support from traditional uh, streams of public health funding. But um, we see all the time that we receive, um, we receive requests for support, requests for services every day from people living all over the state um, so folks as far away as Fort Dodge and Sioux City and Mason City um, to some of the closer rural counties in our state. Um, we have an office in Cedar Rapids and we know that um, many individuals will drive over an hour to get to our office. Um, and it's not just the services that we provide uh, that people travel long distances to, um, but it's treatment as well. So when we meet with individuals, who are interested in uh, changing their drug use patterns and are looking for a treatment. People are typically needing to travel up to two hours uh, one way just to get to a doctor's appointment um, because the number of individual doctors or advanced practitioners, uh, PAs and NPs, who are providing substance use treatment services in the state are so low. Um, and the regulations up until actually, it's interesting, up until a couple of weeks ago, um, due to the coronavirus pandemic, um, there were a number of restrictions on treatments, especially for people with opioid use disorder, um, that required that you must visit a clinic every single day uh, to receive dosing and medi for medication. And so um, for many people, they're driving an hour and a half in their car every day to a clinic just to get treatment for and opioid use disorder, and that's that's unusual. Um, and because Iowa's population is spread out um, fairly sparsely and um, in not a lot of dense clusters in many parts of the state, it's just not feasible that we're ever going to have um, lots and lots of new addiction treatment centers pop up in, in small towns or in, in places that are closer to where people live. Um, so then it means we need to think of new ways to get services to meet people where they're at um, rather than requiring people to kind of come every day for dosing and medication. That is a dire picture in many ways. It's so resource intensive to do that kind of daily commuting. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these new ways IHRC is exploring to bring services and treatment to folks at distance? Sure. So for our services, um, we use a very, very old-fashioned uh, method called the U.S. Postal Service, um, and we do a lot of service provision via the mail, um, and we use as much as possible. Um, we'll tr provide training and services to people over the phone via text message um, or, or FaceTime or a basic phone call, and then mail people what they need. Um, through some of the changes that have just taken place at the federal level um, that regulate access to treatment. Um, while we are not a treatment provider ourselves, we operate a, couple, a patient navigation program that helps connect people directly into treatment. And so with our patient navigation program, uh, what we've seen happen in the last couple of weeks 
his um, rules that have been in place since the 1970s have suddenly shifted at the federal level, um, making it uh, so that people who are looking for treatment for substance use disorders, whereas once um, there was a ban on providing telehealth services for people uh, who are seeking treatment, especially for opioid use disorder, that ban has now been lifted. And so now, um, rather than uh, play a game of where we in the past have tried to fill in, sort of fill in the gaps and figure out how we can piece together a solution to get somebody to a treatment provider who lives two hours away by stringing together a series of cabs or Ubers um, and meeting someone at a hospital to advocate for them. Now it's suddenly very different and we're able to allow people access to meet with providers via telehealth for the first time to receive their treatment for addiction. Um, and that's a huge deal. Um, it has made um, compliance with appointments or people um, following through on coming to their appointments. The rates have increased really dramatically, um, but it's also made it a lot easier for people to find providers that they uh, will work well with. Um, so for example, Many providers in the state of Iowa use a treatment model that's been pioneered by um, the Betty Ford and Hazelden Foundation in Minnesota, which uses an abstinence-based model of treating substance use disorders. But in Iowa, there are only a few providers who are uh, willing to take a harm reduction philosophy and approach to treatment and work to meet people where they are and meet people with flexibility uh, when it comes to thinking about what a person or a patient's goals are and allowing that to dictate the course of treatment rather than um, requiring that the provider's goals or the certain philosophical approach to treatment's goals dictate how that person's uh, process should go in treatment. Um, so that has been really powerful and that it, this, these new telehealth um, regulation changes allow for people to start accessing treatment um, through a provider of their choosing, not just the only provider who exists within a two-hour radius, um, but gives people a lot more flexibility and freedom in, in finding a provider that really was able to work with them on their individual unique goals. That's incredible and really hopeful. Could you tell us a little bit more about, in your opinion, what the most vital service or treatment IHRC offers is? And you've already spoken to these changes in telehealth, but are there any other changes that have really shaped how IHRC functions recently? Sure. So um, one of our, our most important services that we provide is overdose prevention. Um, and in our program, uh, we supply people with this medication that's called naloxone, also known as the brand name Narcan. And the medication is one that reverses an opioid overdose. So for people who are um, using drugs like heroin or prescription opioids, um, overdose can be something that happens fairly commonly. And this medication uh, works essentially to uh, bring people back from the dead almost. It's sort of a, a, a miracle drug uh, in that it has no adverse side effects. Um, it's not dangerous to administer to someone who's not overdosing. And in fact, it's really not dangerous at all. Um, and there's no, there's no upper limit of dosing. So it's a really, really safe medication. Um, many physicians will tell you that it's safer, many, many times safer 
than a number of the medications that are for sale in the aisles of the hy pharmacy, like Tylenol or ibuprofen. And so this medication is one that we distribute to people all over the state. Um, we've distributed nearly 40,000 doses in the last two and a half years, and we've had a lot of success with distributing the medication because many people that we distributed it to come back to us looking for more medication and they tell us that they've used it. So we know that at this point we've had around uh, 2,600 individuals whose lives have been saved from the medication and having had an overdose reverse. Um, there's really, really good data about this medication that exists uh, at the the government level, or sorry, at the at the national level, and so the federal government has put out a lot of guidelines on how to best um, best target the distribution of this medication in a community. And so there are many messages from uh, people like the Surgeon General who say everybody should carry naloxone with them. Everybody should obtain this medication and carry it on them in case they observe an overdose. Um, but really, what we know is that uh, people who are most likely to reverse an overdose and to administer this medication are people who are actively using substances um, and then the close close family and friends of people who use drugs. So if you don't know someone in your life that you see on a regular basis, um, in a place like Iowa where we don't have um, an intense um, activity of people living and working and being out on the street, um, there's not a lot of a lot of life that happens necessarily outside in Iowa, um, other than people like going for a walk or a run. Um, it's certainly not like Philadelphia or in New York. You're not likely to witness an overdose in a public setting. But for people who have a sister or a boyfriend or someone really close to them that does use heroin or other opiates, then carrying naloxone is often um, something that they're more likely um, to have a need for it than somebody in the general public, but even more so than law enforcement and other first responders. So people who use drugs reverse about 85% of all overdoses um, that are reversed with naloxone, whereas law enforcement and emergency medical responders reverse about 5% um, each, respectively. So within the last few weeks, um, one thing that we have have thought may happen, um, but have had a hard time tracking, uh, is that there may be an increase in overdoses due to um, social distancing that leads to social isolation. So when people are isolated, that can be a time when their drug use increases because a lot of times opiate use in particular is a response to a, sort of a painful stimulus or something that's uncomfortable. And um, being alone is something that oftentimes can be uncomfortable and leave people feeling um, vulnerable to pain of some kind. Um, and so many people around the country are anticipating that there will be a spike in overdoses, especially fatal overdoses, because when people are by themselves, uh, especially people using drugs by themselves, there isn't, that means there's not somebody else there to administer this medication, Narcan, in the event of an overdose. So much people are overdosing, they're unconscious, they're not breathing, they can't administer it to themselves, and there's not really, uh, there's no predicting when somebody's going to overdose. So you really need to have people watching out for each other, spending time around one another, um, physically checking up on one another, 
in order to be able to make overdose prevention work. And when we have um, people are so isolated and distant from one another, then it becomes trickier to make sure that people can do that, uh, that act of looking out for and protecting one another. Um, so while we don't know yet what the impacts will be um, or what the effect will be, we, many people do anticipate um, that the pandemic's secondary effect will be to drive an increase in overdose deaths. That is hard to hear and terrifying, I'm sure, for you and everyone that you work with and loved ones and people that you know that uh, are vulnerable right now. So how are you responding at IHRC to the pandemic specifically? Okay, so we, um, we've kept our services open. Uh, we're continuing to function uh, sort of as usual, but we're encouraging our clients and our participants uh, to receive deliveries from us rather than coming into our office and into our drop-in center. We're really promoting and encouraging that people stay home and let us come to them and deliver supplies. Um, we're taking many, many precautions when we interact with people. Um, so making sure that we keep a distance between ourselves and others, wearing appropriate uh, personal protective equipment, um, and making sure to practice good hygiene practices, um, and making sure that we reduce the, the amount of contact between ourselves and our clients as much as possible. Um, but one of the most important things that we've been doing is just working to educate uh, the people that we serve about this pandemic because many um, don't have uh, very strong uh, sources of information where they receive news about public health. Um, this is something that's been very confusing and especially because many of the people that we serve are relatively low income and have a history of arrest and incarceration. Um, there's a general sense of mistrust of government um, so people are, have not necessarily um, been heeding the warnings of government officials and not necessarily um, listening to the instructions and orders to practice social distancing, um, but have, have um, had sort of a big gap in understanding about what is real and what is not real when it comes to the pandemic and its signs and symptoms and opportunities for prevention. So that's I think the, the most important role that we play at this time is getting out accurate information to a community that has been deemed by traditional public health services as too hard to reach or impossible to access. That's incredible, important work. In non-pandemic times, how does IHRC advise folks who want to speak to the issues that you deal with every day about the language that should be used to address the stigma of addiction. What kind of language is best and how can we shift community thinking about these topics? Sure, so um, we often talk about using person-centered language. Um, and so you'll notice that while we've been talking, I haven't referred to anyone that we work with as an addict or um, as a more uh, inflammatory term that people sometimes use to describe uh, the community of people that experience uh, experience substance use disorders or just use drugs recreationally. Um, many people use drugs and do not have a substance use disorder. So we try to um, use language that is broad 
and encompasses many different types of behaviors and life experiences. And that means leading with um, leading with language where the, the word person or people comes first. Um, so the, the ensuring that people are not identified by their behaviors, but people are identified first as people and then as an action second. So people who use drugs rather than a drug user or a drug addict. Um, and then removing some of those identify those terms that uh, reduce people to their behaviors like an addict um, from our lexicon. For people who choose to self-describe themselves in those ways, um, then that is never something that needs to be um, stopped or ashamed or, you know, we don't want people going around and saying, oh, you just referred to yourself as an addict. Don't you know that that's stigmatizing? Um, no, for many people um, referring to themselves as uh, somebody who is an addict um, can be something that is seen as empowering and claiming a certain narrative or story or identity. Um, but for people in the broader community who want to um, dissolve stigma, adjusting our language can be a first step that people take. Um, probably the biggest and most important way to address stigma though in the community is a really dramatic step and it's a big one um, but it gets at the heart of the issue, and that is that um, substance use is stigmatized because it's something that we believe to be criminal. And while many people know and will say for things like, we really can't arrest ourselves, our way out of a drug problem, um, arrest and incarceration is not the solution to a medical or a public health problem, until we can move past just giving lip service to those ideas um, and actively change the laws around substance use in order to make sure that people that use drugs are actively not criminalized, um, then we don't have much hope for changing the way in which uh, substance use and the people that use drugs are stigmatized. Um, decriminalizing substances, but most importantly, decriminalizing the people who use them is the most important uh, step to be taken in order to reduce stigma because without having that criminal association um, it's hard to continue to stigmatize people. Thank you. So we've talked a lot about the client-facing services that IHRC offers but you bring up a lot of important intersections with policy at both the state and federal level. So how does IHRC affect policy or try to affect policy? So our policy program works to address a number of legislative priorities. And so we primarily work at the state level to change and shift policy, working on policies that affect infectious disease and overdose rates for people who use drugs. Um, so as an organization, we develop public policy, working with our partners at the national level uh, to develop policies that take into account uh, lessons learned from other states and best practices from other policy environments, um, and then bring those pieces of legislation to elected officials in our state house in Iowa and work with them to see those, um, those bills introduced and then moved through the state house. Um, at the federal level, we don't do nearly as much, and so our focus is really at the state level. Um, but we work with our, our national partners to support campaigns that they lead at the federal level um, in order to make sure that um, 
our federal lawmakers know that their constituents in their districts are paying attention and do care about the issues um, that federal advocates are asking them to pay attention to. Great. So you've talked about some good scenarios like decriminalizing drug use as, as an optimal outcome for the work that you do. Could you describe for us the end of public health? What is the absolute worst case scenario in your opinion? I think that for the worst case scenario for the community of people that we work with, um, in many ways we have been, we have been living in the worst case scenario for, for quite some time. Um, and in living in a, a world in which things are actively getting worse for people who use drugs. Um, and I think if, if you could design a system um, in which you wanted people to continue to get sick and you wanted people to, to die from accidental poisoning, you, know, you would design the system that we live in now because over the last 150 years, um, we've created a world in which people believe that um, people who are experiencing pain and who take um, very rational, very reasonable steps to minimize the discomfort or the pain they feel on a daily basis, um, be it physical pain or psycho psychological pain or emotional or spiritual pain, um, when people work to address that pain, um, they're viewed as deviant and criminal. Um, and so what we have essentially done is decided that um, other people's pain of certain kinds does not concern us. Um, and not only does it not concern us, but it scares us and it, it frightens and upsets us. And so we need to remove it um, from public eye and from our communities in general. Um, and so by putting people into prison and into jail, for very long sentences um, simply for the act of, of choosing to put a substance into their body that will um, alter their consciousness. Um, that fundamental um, decision has really transformed uh, the world that we live in for people who use drugs, um, but it's also created a sort of a perfect storm in which um, We've built up so much momentum around this particular system. Um, our prisons are so large and our criminal justice system employs so many people um, that because of the economic system we rely on, there are very few incentives to do anything differently. And so, and in fact, we are incentivized to continue um, moving forward with this idea that some people's pain is unfathomable and some people's pain is inappropriate or deviant and bad um, and therefore we must remove these people from our community and put them in a place that's out of sight um, and then not only do we do that but we make a lot of people make a lot of money off of that very process um, and once individuals are released um, there's really no hope for um, for repair, for healing, and for forward movement. People are largely just caught up in the cycle of um, remain and remain in the criminal justice system for most of their lifetime. Um, so in a lot of ways, um, you couldn't design a system 
um, that is more perfect when it comes to perpetuating underlying pain and suffering that people experience that can lead to um, substance use, especially in its more problematic forms. Um, in many ways, um, there are examples in the world today that are, are much more dramatic um, and are supported by, by President Trump um, in other parts of the world, um, people who possess a small amount of substances um, can be um, uh, can can be tried um, with the death penalty, but in in some in the Philippines, um, the Philipp president of the Philippines has called for vigilante justice against people who use small amounts of substances. Um, so encouraging citizens of the Philippines to go out in the streets and murder um, people who are suspected to be addicted to substances. Um, and so that is, I think, really if. If that's not apocalyptic, then I, I'm not sure what would be the next worst step to happen um, in in this in this world for people who use drugs. Um, so it's a bleak picture um, and fairly fairly depressing. Um, but I think it offers, on the other hand, um, a lot of opportunities for hope because it uh, in recognizing that. Um, things cannot really get much worse. Um, there are many, many, many opportunities for things to get better. That leads into my next question of what gives you hope? Yeah, I, I think about this a lot because um, the work that we do can be very heavy um, and there is a lot of suffering and a lot of death that uh, people are exposed to when they work. Uh, in this field, or not just when people work in this field, but when people are surrounded um, every day by uh, this as their as their personal world too, and not just their professional world. Um, and so, for in the in the work that we do, really fundamental to um, our goals is um, the desire to work with people to create a feeling and sense of empowerment. <clears throat> So rather than um, just going out and deciding that we're going to deliver services to people, we're working to engage people in a process um, and working to bring people into a community and to participate in something that's bigger than themselves um, and offering people an opportunity to create meaning and connection um, is, is sometimes what people will identify as, as the heart of community organizing and community building. Um, and it's not traditionally what's seen as, as the fundamental heart of public health. Um, but in the work that we do, all of it is about building connection with people and then encouraging them to stay. Um, and then watching what happens from there is, is the most hopeful of all. Um, and so there's so many people that have come into our program who have arrived and said, I, I witnessed an overdose and I need Narcan for the next time that happens. Um, and, and the first question we'll ask is, well, how many people do you know that are like you? How many people do you know that are, are using heroin on a daily basis or people that are overdosing? And we'll give people um, as, as much naloxone as they want based on the number of people that are in their network. Um, so some people will say, okay, I could use 100 doses of naloxone. Some people say, I could use 800 doses. And we'll say, okay. Um, and so watching those individuals go out into the community and transform themselves um, from having an idea of themselves as someone who is worthless or powerless 
or worthy of being in prison and not worthy of um, having experiences and relationships in the world that offer them an opportunity for connection and meaning. Um, watching people dissolve those ideas and those falsehoods in their thinking and then gain very real proof that they are valuable by distributing this medication and watching as other people use it to save someone's life. That leads to um, a really great sense of personal power being instilled in people. And so even though at the, at the start of the day, we never set out to say, we're going to stop people from using drugs in Iowa. Oftentimes as a byproduct of the things that we do, like distribute naloxone, people will come back to us and say, um, because you gave me this naloxone and because you taught me how to teach other people to use it, I felt a sense of value in myself. And when I felt that way, I wanted to become more accountable to the other people in my life who were telling me that my substance use was causing problems in our relationships. I wanted to modify the way that this drug shows up in my life so that I can um, give out more naloxone so that this can become my career so that I can do this every day and save more people's lives. Um, and so we see a lot of times we see people um, cease their drug use um, or dramatically, dramatically reduce their drug use as a result of engagement in the types of, of programs that we provide. And so I think, I think just to answer your question, watching um, other human beings go through that evolution of, of recognizing their own value and power um, is beautiful. And even though it's a very small thing that happens one person at a time, um, it's extremely helpful because it's such a profound change um, and it offers so much more opportunity for 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 other people to, to beyond just ourselves, um, but for all the people that exist around these other individuals as well. Mm, thank you. That is really hopeful. Is there anything else I should have asked? No, I don't think so. Um, I really appreciate you having me and for the thoughtful questions and for the opportunity to discuss. Thank you so much, Sarah. Your work is so crucial and so needed, and I really enjoyed our conversation. This has been Art at the End of the World with Beryl Rose Smith. Tune in next week to learn about another way the world might end. The music for this podcast was written, performed, and produced by Gabby Vanek. You can hear more of her work at her SoundCloud, which is linked in the show notes. Thanks, Gabby, and thanks all of you for listening.